Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solis, and with me is my very, very talented friend, who is my very own beautiful haiku, the mixtress DC Dina. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do love being a haiku. You, you, you can sum me up in five so it's like, <laughs> syllables. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And then five is an haiku, five or three or yes. two. It's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You're all of those things and I mean, then some. Yeah. Oh, there you go. I love that. <laughs> I'll take you on this dreary day. It is a little dreary. It is. Um, so in keeping our promise to honor Women's Month, um, I'd like to open up today's episode my with a quote one. From, one of my, from one of the most extraordinary women of all time, in my opinion. Do you mind? I would love. All right. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Mm. It's Maya Angelou. The truth. I know. So, um, like I said, she's one of the most influential women in American history. She was a poet, a singer, an author, civil rights activist, and um, we all know that her award-winning uh, memoir, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, um, made literary history um, as the first nonfiction bestseller by an African-American woman. Um, but you know, it's crazy is because she didn't have an easy start at life, not at all. Um, she grew up um, in Stamps, Arkansas, which I had to look up, look that up as to where it was, you know, because I lived in Little Rock, had no idea where Stamps is. Stamps, Arkansas, it is in the middle of nowhere. Um, absolutely, it's closer closer to Texarkana side. What is this Arkansas you speak of? Yeah, it's just kidding. It's, it's, it's I'm, joking. State, I'm joking. It's a state that uh, it's where I like to fly over. Wait, but uh, <laughs> I watch the Ozarks. I know all about it. <laughs> That's Missouri. Oh, is it? Yeah, that's, my, that's where I'm oh, from. Clearly don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Social studies. It's pretty much. It's, again, all those flyover states. But obviously in those, that, those parts, and especially when she was growing up, she obviously did uh, dealt with a lot of racial prejudices and discrimination. Um, so it's, it's really awe-inspiring to think to have such uh, a tough life, started life, but yet be such a beautiful soul. Oh, here's another thing. So she, unfortunately, her mother's um, husband did some ni not nice things to her. And her uncles found out. And that's how her stepfather met his maker. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually made such a beautiful woman who was like such a master of words. She was actually mute because of it, or near mute for years. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. Yeah, and then so many beautiful words came from this one. So, speaking of extraordinary women with remarkable stories that should be shared brings me to today's designated drinker, who also happens to be an author. She's the curator um, at the National Museum of American History and an associate professor at Georgetown University. Welcome to the show, Maria Loza. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, tell us, I mean, you, I mean, want to talk about an overachiever, for God's sakes, but tell me how you got there. How is it that you became a curator at the Smithsonian um, and then a, a professor at Georgetown? That's amazing. It's a very, very long road for someone who I think very well at 16, 15, I would have just not expected this life. <laughs> I was a very nice, solid B student. <laughs> and I do think that we should all rally around the B students every once in a while and make sure they have scholarships and support and say, we know you're B, we know you're C, <laughs> but you can get somewhere. <laughs> if you apply yourself, maybe you can find the area that you're A in. And I think that's exactly what happened to me. I found what 
you know, made me excited to learn, made me excited to read. And so I got better and better at school. So I was pretty lucky in that I found something I really enjoyed. Yeah. So yeah. Um, after, after undergrad, well, during undergrad, I was really lucky in 1996 to set foot on this campus in the middle of kind of like nowhere, rural, agricultural land, Champaign-Urbana. And I got there and they were just rolling out this minor in Latino studies. And I was like, me, I can take those classes. And so all of a sudden I was like, not only reading and writing and really interested, going to class, super excited, but I became that A student, that that position that was so elusive in high school. <laughs> <laughs> so it was you just you just needed time to find it. Oh, definitely. And then I went on to graduate school. I actually thought for a short while that I wanted to be an anthropologist. And then I decided, nope, I want to be a historian. And I ended up at uh, Brown in American Studies. And I always say American Studies is where the hippie historians hang out. Uh, you know, there are American studies programs all over the U.S., but you will always find a hippie historian there. Not necessarily a straight-laced <laughs> one, some who likes to re read literature, watch movies, hang out. That's where they, that's where they hang out in American studies. That's and funny. while I was, yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. And while I was in... So that's where you found your people. <laughs> definitely. That's where I found my history people. And then when yeah. I uh, basically started at... Uh, Brown, the National Museum of American History, was based was creating a project to start documenting the lives of Mexican guest workers that came through the Bracero program from 1942 to 1964. A little over 4.5 million uh, contracts were issued to Mexican wow. guest workers. Guest workers basically means they come in, they work, they you know see the terms of their contract to an end, you know through the duration of the contract, and then they leave and. I was tracking down these communities across the U.S. and Mexico and talking to these elderly men and carrying out oral histories. And so I spent a whole long time with audio and with a headset. <laughs> Did you have a and Bob asking, Barker? <laughs> the little no, Bob Barker you know, the funny, thing, the funny thing is for a long time, like whenever anything was recorded, I was terrible at it. And people were like, but you're like an oral historian. How can you be like terrible at recording? <laughs> and the thing about oral history is like you ask people questions and you kind of make yourself small as a mouse so that, you know, like. So their story shines. So you yeah. keep asking questions and then you like shrink yourself as small as possible so that their like story and their audio like shines big. So for a long time, when anybody would ask me something and it was recorded, I just made myself teeny, teeny, tiny like a mouse. That's important. <laughs> but it's also very odd because it's very walkie talkie, not very good for <laughs> anything else. <laughs> But um, so, yeah, so I spent a chunk of uh, my graduate career traveling Mexico and the U.S. and helping basically communities document this story um, in their, wow. you know, in their geographies. And then I got to go several times to Mexico with a backpack, a recorder and all of my equipment and do that over there because we knew that some uh, Mexican guest workers, Braceros, stayed in the U.S. while others returned to Mexico. The great majority were supposed to return but a lot find, found a footing in the U.S. Um, through the program and decided to figure out how to become documented or also alternatively decided to skip out on their contracts and become undocumented. Wow. So 
Spent a lot of time doing that. Wow. So may I ask you, where in Mexico, where did you find most of those people that you were documenting? The largest sending states are the central states, uh, Guanajuato, Jalisco, Michoacán. But I actually got to travel a lot of like states off the beaten path and find really vibrant uh, Bracero communities. I really enjoyed basically going to places like Oaxaca and the Yucatan and also documenting a little known story of the Bracero program, which was that indigenous communities came through the program as well. And so, you know, when I was in undergrad and even graduate school, Mexican history and Mexican-American history is taught in particular ways that don't necessarily acknowledge the diversity of the community. And yeah. so I got to start writing some of those histories and was super excited to do so. Wow. And then I also got to learn a whole lot about stuff that I didn't know very much about. So it was fun. Oh, that's great. No wonder you got you became that A student. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, yeah. I, it also was just really fun. You never realize how generous people are until you visit with them and they not only share their life, they show you around their communities, and then they, at the end, offer you food. And you're like, what is this? <laughs> you, barely knew, you barely know me and you're so generous. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think that's a common thread that um, I, when you start meeting people from different areas. Uh, just not the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it just, just you meet smaller communities and some have so little, but they give, share with you what they have. Yeah. Um, it's just an amazing, yeah. I, there were a lot of, I had that a lot living in Hawaii. The people that, the Micronesians would come and often uh, they were frowned upon in the islands. There's a lot of homelessness, mm -hmm. um, but just also the way of life for Micronesians they live on the beach. It's just their way of life. And I'm sure they wanted more, but it's very expensive. But we were doing a, a photo shoot and literally we're just paying them not enough, but it was a commercial job. And literally they would beg me to eat food. Like they didn't have much or barbecuing on the beach. And literally if you, you, you didn't turn it down because you felt they were, had so little, but they wanted to give, they were appreciative and open and lovely. Um, but again, that generosity and just and giving what you have. If more people could just be like that, just even a little, what a better society we'd all live in, in, this, in, at least in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's something about cherishing ho being hospitable, right? And knowing that whoever visited you walked out with a full stomach and, you know, walked out happy. It's kind of this value of, like, community and hospitality. Like, you don't want anyone to leave your community basically thinking that you're not generous and hospitable, right? Yeah. I, lo I love that. Like, you know, folks at the end would, you know, give me a hug and just like see me on my way, but like so generous in that they always wanted me to feel like, look, we know you're here for a little, you know, you're walking away with a full stomach and a happy face. <laughs> That's great. So will you explain to our listeners what this program was? Yeah. So uh, during World War II, the U.S., right at the beginning of the world of the war, uh, you know, thought that they definitely farmers would experience a labor shortage. And so uh, they basically uh, created a bilateral agreement with Mexico to allow Mexican guest workers, known as braceros, reference to their arms, brazos, farmhands, to come into the U.S. and work in agriculture and railroad. 
The railroad component was done away with right after the war ended because railroad jobs are good jobs and the railroad union is a strong union. And so those are highly skilled, sought after jobs. But agriculture, by law, has never as, as vigorously been protected as industry. And so as other industries, employment in places like the railroad. And so uh, agricultural jobs are jobs that folks were looking to move away from, not to. Um, low wages, conditions not so great. And so Mexican guest workers were to fill that space. Ironically, after the war ended, we start seeing numbers increase of Mexican guest workers. And it's partly because agriculture and agribusiness became so reliant on these temporary workers. And so the numbers shoot up in the 50s and the 60s. So a lot of times when people say, oh, but it was brought on by World War II, I always have to say, well, it's a perceived labor shortage because people who had other options to work in other things that got paid better would rather do yeah. that. And it's very similar to, I would say, the present day where we're seeing, especially in you know, restaurants, in uh, meatpacking, in all kinds of areas, people move away from jobs. I mean, you can see that sometimes it's not necessarily a labor shortage, but there's some kind of, um, there's something that's not quite clicking between employee and employers. You don't have that problem, right, Gina? Oh, no, no. You, you no. have no labor. restaurateur right now has been so easy. So easy. <laughs> Everybody should do, be a restaurateur during COVID, for yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you just you um, eat bonbons all day, right? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I agree with what you're saying about that people have other options to move on. Mm -hmm. um, I do see that they're starting to change certain laws, especially for, like, um, trucker unions, stuff like that, uh, lowering the age to 18. Oh, my, <clears> really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and trying to fill uh, what everybody wants. And what's interesting is, is that nobody wants to work in the restaurants, but they all want the service that comes with the restaurants. But they don't want to let anybody come in from another country, but, you know, they want the service in the restaurants, and they don't want to take the jobs either. Yeah. And then they want you to increase your labor, which we have, like, how much we pay and, and starting to do away with tips so that people will have a guaranteed wage. But... Um, it is, a, it's an industry or a service industry is suffering in general. Like everybody now, you know, no one's, everyone's too good to do anything. And, um, you know, people always say to me like, oh, how'd you get started in the restaurant business? I'm like, oh, you know, after I got my graduate degree, they're like, what? <laughs> Why do you work in a restaurant? I'm like, I love it. And they're like, why would you love that? I'm like, well, do you love going to restaurants? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, I love creating that space. Because you were glutton for punishment. I think also, <laughs> but you know what? I live on a farm now. I moved during COVID to a farm at Farmette. And I love it, but I think I just love that kind of work. You know, like I love being in it. Like the salt of the earth kind yeah, of thing. And I, yeah, I love growing things. I love feeding people. I... I get pure joy out of it. And like, as much as it's hard to grind, I enjoy it. But I also think that there's a spirituality, which is an ethic and it's, there's, an, I, I, there's no term for this. And maybe there is a term and I miss, I don't know it. There is a, a spirituality to the work that we do. Like, and like you give it, you're giving people food to eat that fulfills you. And people eating your food is almost like, a, um, it's amazing. Well, it fulfills your soul. Like, it's amazing. Point, it's like that thousands, yeah, thousands of people eat my food every day in all different kinds of locations. Yep. And it's crazy to think that you could fulfill that. 
So I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea where that falls into the anthropology of the world or anything. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's that special space that food takes up. It's it's not just about survival. It's something that we enjoy and build community around and conversation around. And so I think there is this. There are these very special interactions that we forget about when we simply you know, break bread with people and take a second and a beat to just, you know, breathe a little. I think that there definitely is a grind everywhere in every in many industries, right? Restaurant, whether you work at a restaurant or somewhere else. And I think that kind of like moment of respite and like just connection, I think a lot of people crave that. And there's a lot of people really good at creating that environment, you know? Yeah. 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 And there's some people like my mother who was terrible at it. Oh, my mother was a terrible cook too. My mother was the worst. My mother, my mother would frequently burn beans. And if you've ever smelled burned beans, they're oh, the they're worst. Terrible. And I mean, really, oh, you just had to put water in them. I and I'm like, Mom, you just had to put water, water. <laughs> that you have a really interesting backstory. Will you share with our listeners your family's journey into coming into the U.S.? Yeah, well, my both my parents are uh, immigrants from Mexico, and they found themselves ba- basically living in the same apartment building in Chicago. Uh, two sets of brothers, two sisters, and they quickly all got married. And so my mom and my father have a set of siblings that are married, and not <laughs> incestuous because it's a brother and a, a two brothers married two sisters, very like small village. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Keeping it in the family. Keep it close. No, I love Definitely. that. Yeah, so I have a set of cousins that look exactly like me, freakily alike. <laughs> <laughs> now it's cool. I love that. Yeah, but definitely our house was that home base for a lot of, a lot of the immigrant community to just stop over. And so, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that when I go to places that folks don't really know me and they offer me a plate of food. I shouldn't be surprised in that, you know, my auntie and my dad did the same thing for people when they came through Chicago. <laughs> They'd make and sure so that- And so her mom cooked when it was time for them to go. That's what it was. No, <laughs> oh, well, no, my mom, my mom rarely cooked. My mom rarely, rarely cooked. It's so sad. So her sister um, is the really great cook in the family. And her sister basically opted to stay home and take care of all of the children while my mom, my dad, and my uncle went to work. So they eventually bought an apartment building, my uncle, in Chicago, a brownstone, and we lived on one floor, they lived on another. But my mom, everybody, everybody knew when my mom cooked, like you'd go over to my mom's house, right? And she'd offer you something you'd ask, who cooked it? Because the likelihood (laughs) that she cooked it was slim, but if you were lucky, her sister cooked it. So you wanted it. If your yeah. sister made it, you're like, yes, I would like that. Please give me a side of that and this. But if my mother cooked it, you just sort of say, I'm full. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, but no, ma. <laughs> yes. You just simply say, I'm full. It's okay. I, you know, heads up. Your mom cooks. Stay away. Yeah. I think your family's story is pretty um, in- it's inspiring that you're two uh, immigrant parents that our family really came through the border, not necessarily the easy way either, but have this amazing daughter. 
yeah. that has gone on. I mean, this is such one of those stories that I would, I, there's many of these stories, but so few are told. And I think it's unfortunate that we don't get to be able to bring that forward. So I feel kind of honored being able to do that. Um, just the fact that you are such an amazing woman and it's just such a, a, a space that wasn't, you know, there was no silver spoon by any means. I um, appreciate that you say that, but it's really funny because in my family, I love their sense of humor and they're just sort of really like lovely down to earth selves. But at one point, someone said to my mother, you must be very proud of your daughter, you know, everything she's accomplished. And she's like, yeah, I, I am. You know, when my dad basically drove me to Brown very first year, he told his boss, hey, you know, I need some time off to drive my daughter to graduate school. Can I get these days off? And his boss asked him, he said, Uh you know, where's she going? And the boss says, she's going to Brown. And his boss says to him, well, my kids applied there and they didn't get in. She must be really smart. And I love this. Love my dad's answer. No, she's just average. (laughs) 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 And I love it because, you know, it just... It doesn't matter. It's like they see me the way I was as a five-year-old, as a 15-year-old, all mashed up together. And they're like, "Mm, you know, she's just average. And I love it. It's wonderful. There's nothing like being real and keeping you humble. (laughs) Well, also, it's also something like, you know, we'll tell you when you do something impressive for us. (laughs) Speaking of impressive, let's talk about your book. So I basically, during my first job, had the opportunity to turn all of my research into a book. And it was basically a book that really kind of showed the lessons that I had learned over, you know, over, what was it, seven years of traveling and talking to these communities and just spending time with with farm-working communities. And so... I wrote a book where every chapter is kind of a lesson that I learned from from that community in different geographies and different places, but everything that I had learned and everything I was so shocked about in terms of having not learned that prior to this community teaching me that. So it's like these flashpoints where I was like, for as much as I've read and as much as I know, like... The exciting part is like just sitting down, listening and having people just school me, school me in really wonderful ways, you know, and just like teach me things that I, despite having read so many books, had never learned and just shake me up. I liked it. (laughs) So that's that's, every chapter kind of traces a different flashpoint. And, you know, I was lucky enough to um, earn some recognition and the book has been, you know, it's it's done well. It's like the little engine that could. It, it's done well. <laughs> okay, now she's being humble. It earned some recognition. So tell us the name of the book and the recognition. So in two, it, the book came out um, in 2016, so it's been a while. But the uh, very next year it won uh, a prize given by the Immigration and Ethnic History Society. And it's like the crew of immigration historians that bestow that one award once a year to the best book in immigration history. And that year I was so excited. And it wasn't so excited so much for me because to me it also just signaled this is the year that the Mexican guest worker just gets a little more attention. 
<laughs> so every time something happens like that, I just sort of think about these aging men who largely our country has forgotten about, but really impacted the way agriculture um, works, how we're fed, how our food system works, but also the expectation that, you know, this group of people could basically be temporary workers. And they they basically solidified, and for a lot of just policy makers, this idea that you could have labor without having the year-round community member, as disturbing as it is. I mean, that's usually my biggest critique about guest worker programs, right? That people can come in year after year and feed you and do this incredible amount of labor, but never have a pathway of belonging in the yeah. societies that they help basically contribute to. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. That's, so that's... And you never drop know. the name of the book. <laughs> yeah, what's the name of the book? I'm like... <laughs> it's Defiant Braceros. And it's basically about those moments of defiance, right? Where they were like, mm, we're human beings and we're going to show you. That's awesome. And for our listeners, they could find that on um, Amazon, correct? It's easy mm -hmm. as that, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. I think we should uh, make this cocktail. Yeah, I'm done. We're gonna make this cocktail. So the cocktail today is a, a lovely little uh, homage um, uh, to just all the things like you're you know talking oh, about. Thanks. You know what it is. So in here is two ounces of the farm stock uh, whistle pig rye, which is really delicious. Um, one ounce of Cointreau, one ounce of lemon juice, um, half an ounce of simple syrup, and then we're gonna make a flip. So you're gonna take this, and you're gonna dry shake it with that and lemon juice. Um, before you add your ice, you're gonna shake. It's gonna be nice and frothy. You're gonna pop off the top of your uh, shaker tin. Then you'll add your ice, shake it again, super hard. And then you're gonna finish it with a little bit of nutmeg and Angostura. And the reason why I put the nutmeg on the top, well, one, it's really fragrant with the Angostura bitters, but also it is one of those spices that has its own uh, life of how hard it was to not only cultivate the spice, but to bring it into this country. And that should be your next your next uh, amount of, um, of workers that literally, the people that brought spices all over the world. It's, uh, it's incredible. So, um, as I call it, uh, Dancing with the Moon, which is uh, a Bruno Mars song, which I don't know. <laughs> I don't, talking to the moon, sorry. Talking to the moon. I don't hey, know let's why dance I'm, in the moon. I don't know why I'm thinking, I, I was like li listening to the radio, I was like, oh, this is perfect. We'll just well, you know, if you drink enough of them, you might dance to the moon. What I I would love that, but anyway, so it's just a nice, easy cheers. sipping cocktail. So cheers. I'm gonna have to make myself one tonight. That looks delicious. Oh, it's so good. You're going to have to. Okay, so you um you dry shake it first, but I've also heard you say that you have to be careful when you shake it again because you don't want to break the egg down, right? Like when you add the ice. So if you so in the recipe, you'll get it on designatedrinker.show. It tells you when to add the egg. The egg is um you add basically the simple syrup the lemon juice, the egg white, and then everything else, and that way you don't break it. Um, basically, you create, um, you know, you ever have uh, egg drop soup? Yes. Yeah, so if you put it all in, with, if you put just the liquor and the egg in first, that's exactly what's gonna wind up happening. Gotcha. You need the sugar to hold it together like meringue. I like to have sugar to hold it together. But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Barely but, uh, hold it the dry shake is very important. You have to dry shake it first, and then you put the ice in and shake it again. Gotcha. Gotcha. Otherwise, it's going to be, uh, but you could do it without the egg. And if you want to do a vegan cocktail, you can use uh, chickpea water or aquafaba, whatever yeah. you want to call it. 
Nice, nice. So again, where are they going to go get that recipe? You're going to go to designateddrinker.show for the um, recipes and tips, tricks, how to get the book. Yes, we'll have links yes. to the book. Absolutely. How to be a better person. <laughs> <laughs> and how to honor women this month. It's all of month of March. That's right. Well, I... I do have to say, one of the really awesome things in working with the National Museum of American History is we do have an exhibition that opened up uh, last year to honor uh, women's history, girlhood. It's complicated. So maybe that's what people can do. <laughs> yes. See the exhibition. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, now that things we can do those things, we should yes. definitely go do that. Yes, it's amazing. So tell us a little bit about the exhibit. So uh, the National Museum of American History was charged with creating a brand new exhibit uh, celebrating women's history for the centennial of women's suffrage. And I was uh, lucky enough to be on the curatorial, the curatorial team. And we decided that we recognized that a lot of ex uh, museums would be celebrating suffrage, the centennial of suffrage. And we wanted to do something a little different. Again, shake it up. And we decided that we wanted to bring in new audiences, speak to the audiences that already, you know, come and enjoy the museum. And we created an exhibition on girlhood in America. You know, girls are usually seen as people who basically don't have agency, don't have a history. And so we made sure to highlight that girls in America have always had a history. Yeah. I'm bringing my girls to see that. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. No, no. I told my uh, boss, I was like, so long as it doesn't look like, because when she put me on the team, I was like, so long as it doesn't look like pink bows and bedrooms. And she's like, okay, yeah. what do you want to do? Let's not put pink bows in bedrooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> only, 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 only. How old are your girls now, Gina? Uh, they just turned seven and eight. Wow. Yeah, big weekend. I have one little girl that is never going to have pink bows in bedrooms. So I'm wondering what she's going to do. Like, And I love that you said earlier about the solid B student that needs to find their A. I have um, a little girl that's like on that path and very tenacious only for what she wants. Like nature, being outside, bow and arrow, like really. She is Neil's daughter. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think you have to... Um, you have to push the. You have to. You have to embrace the women, uh, the, the girls, and the women and stuff of the society now. And I and I love that you curated something to honor women because I feel like it. You know, maybe maybe women have always been you know doing all the things, but there was nobody ever writing it writing it down. It's like bartenders, right? No one's been. No one wrote a book about a bartender until the 1900s. So it's like we were always there making you something, but nobody was documenting it. Definitely. So, and I mean, I get it. we follow these little girls from like protests to factories into like fashion. And so I love to see how like dynamic and multifaceted and really how they kind of challenge this idea that girls have always kind of like the way we imagine them, like been, you know, uber protected, sitting in a kind of fancy chair somewhere and a big house with, again, the pink bows. That's, that's not been the reality for most American girls. And so we kind of show how badass they are and how they wrote, they worked, they, you know, they did stuff that was amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. That would be a great day. That. That'd be a great day. 
I yeah. mean, it not not just for children too. I mean, that's obviously especially for little girls, but I think it's important for little boys too because our society seems to teach a single singular way. My mom never made me. Um, I had Barbies, yes, but I also had Lincoln Logs, and there was no and there was no divide of that's a boy's toy. Like we always had Legos and things like that that are really like when I would go shopping um, for like my nieces or friends, little girls. I was going through this, like in like the toy area, all the toys for girls were just really imagined, like Barbies and dolls. And and you'd go to the boy section and it obviously was sharpening just, you know, at the youngest age, just motor skills or problem solving. And I still think we see that problem today, unfortunately. But I think there's less stereotype that it's, it's okay better. that you can, little girls can play with little boy toys and it's totally fine. You, yeah, I think it's good. I think it's getting better. I, I do. I, at least I think it is. Or I'm pushing for it to get better. I'm sure. I have no doubt. You know, yeah. so one of my, uh, one of the curators on the team curated a section on education. And one of the things that I was shocked at is that basically we have these ideas about what girls can do that are pretty like static. And she schooled me on a moment in American history where science was for girls and other things were for boys. And I was like, what do you mean science was for girls? She's like, well, let me show you the period in which science was meant to be a discipline, an area of study for women. And she so shows me all of these like documents and pictures. And I was like, holy crap. So you mean like this teaching girls STEM or what have you and saying girls need to go in the science? She's like, yeah, that's basically calling for a return to the past and people don't realize that there was a past where girls were encouraged to do science like natural sciences it's like holy crap that is cool this is why we all need more american history <laughs> <laughs> we definitely do and yeah. me as a historian of, and not of education didn't know that you know yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. You're like, hey, I teach this for a living. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess that's another beautiful thing is that you go through life and if you can realize that when you think you know everything about a thing, you need to quit and go do something else. Um, because the honest truth is you probably have room to grow. Yeah. 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 Or you're just bored of it. Yeah. One of the two. Yeah, something happened. But you know what I'm not bored of? This cocktail. Yeah, I know. This cocktail is so good. I know. I'm thinking like, oh, I could just, you know, I could just chug it. Well, it's healthy because it's that. got nutmeg on it. Oh yeah, it's, and eggs. And eggs. And it's egg like white, it's, egg like, white. it's yeah. like breakfast in a glass. Yeah. That's my kind of breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> breakfast according to designated drinker, anyway. <laughs> well, cocktails used to be served before noon, so yeah. anything with juice, and then after was all hard liquor. So, you know, we are doing this. We're doing this correct. Now. We are. Yeah, we we are. are. Anyway. Over, over with amazing women and learning cool shit. It is. It's right. a good way. It's a good way to start your day. It is. <laughs> That's another commercial. Um, oh, so, God. I think it's time, Gina. Yeah, we should go over to the museum. Yeah, let's go to the museum. Let's go get my kids from school and do that. <laughs> <laughs> Take the kids to the museum. I mean, my, my new thing is going and people watching all of the young kids that are coming in through there and like we have all of these gigantic murals and also historical photographs that are life-size and my favorite is little girls looking at little girls like saying like wow this whole thing is about people my size <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah I guess that's really interesting because I guess as a little girl you're not often exposed to your 
your peer or what you would see as yourself, except in like play or school. Like it's like yeah. it's not like on a pedestal or in or an elevated space. It's just more common. So huh, that would totally. be interesting. All right, we have one last question. Yep. So, um, and it's how we know if you listen to the show or not. Uh oh. Yes. I've okay. listened to a couple episodes in preparation. Okay, good. I then you're ready. <laughs> then you're ready. All right. So, in this day and age, as we know, people identify themselves with either a mythical creature or an animal, and you might identify yourself with uh, a land tortoise because they, you know, roam the earth gathering information for the last, you know, 150 years, and they're really the earth historians, right? If you can identify yourself with one ingredient, whether it's for cooking or for cocktails, what would that ingredient be and why? Oh, I'm just going to go with one that I love. Salt. Oh. Good I answer. Mean, I can't. I put salt on oranges. I put salt <laughs> on, <laughs> um, you know, I put salt on a piece of watermelon. I put salt on everything. I think I'd like wither away if someone would take it away from me. <laughs> I, I love that answer. She's high level sodium. What? Yeah, I am. I am high level sodium. I think it's part partly growing up in like, you know, in the eighties. So much processed food. My like salt, like <laughs> taste for salt is like up here. <laughs> I love it. It's so a good answer. Normal. So yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I love that. It's awesome. Yeah, people have gone to war for salt. People love salt. <laughs> salt wars. Yes, that's real. More history, right? Yeah. All, All right. right. On that note, it's time to close this one. Yes. Cheers, well, cheers to you. Cheers. Happy Women's Month. Yes. And to all your success. Thank you for being so remarkable and sharing your story with us. Happy to be here. And thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. You know, I wish I could be drinking a cocktail with everyone. I see that happening. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.